Welcome to the Success in Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Rajani Kata, author of the best-selling residency match guide, The Successful Match, and creator of the Residency Interview 101 course. This is a special series on the podcast called Energized at Work. We hear so much about burnout in medicine, and it is a real and very challenging problem. That's why I wanted to learn from doctors in all types of specialties who are the opposite of burned out. These are the doctors who are energized by work. I'm looking forward to sharing lessons and secrets from these doctors on this special series. I am really excited to be interviewing um, Dr. Tao Galvan today. And one of the reasons I was so excited to, um, that she accepted the invitation to be on the podcast today is because she is a transplant surgeon. And she is not only a transplant surgeon, she works with adult and pediatric patients at the Baylor College of Medicine and at Texas Children's Hospital. And I think um, just from speaking with her, of course, she has a great deal of excellence in the practice of transplant surgery. But one of the things that really struck me when I was speaking to her was how much empathy and compassion she displays when she's speaking about her patients and especially some of the things that she shared with me about her pediatric patients. So I think there is a lot of wisdom to be gleaned here from, um, from her career path and what she does. So I just wanted to say thank you, Dr. Galvan, to, for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. First of all, um, I know that you are a specialist in abdominal transplants, specifically liver and kidney. I believe that's correct. Can you tell me a little bit about what it is that you uh, work on? Yes. So I do. I'm trained in general surgery. I'm board certified in general surgery. And then I did a fellowship of two years in um, abdominal transplantation, which for my program, we did adult and pediatric kidney and liver transplants. We are trying to expand our program to include uterus transplantation. We just got approved last year as a vascular composite allograft program. So my hope is that by the end of this year, if not early next year, then um, we'll we'll do our first uterus transplant. Wow. I mean, and how many places in the country? I mean, that just came on the radar a few years ago, correct? Like that's true. That's true. I would say um, there's been less than a hundred uterus transplants that have been performed in the world at this point. There are about three or so, maybe four active programs in the country right now. I guess you would you would say we would be the fourth or fifth one. Wow. Okay, that is so exciting. Yeah. Well, um, okay, so you've got a lot of things that that you're working on. Can you tell me a little bit about what your average week is like? Certainly. I appreciate that you asked that as opposed to an average day, because for me, a day is very, the days can be very different. Um, And so my week, usually I will have regular tasks and obligations. So I have to round every day on our patients in the hospital system. And I work in a group where we divide up the three hospitals that we transplant in. And so we all kind of partake in our responsibilities, um, but definitely rounding at the children's hospital is a priority for me. And then we do clinic. So we evaluate patients to see if they're eligible for transplantation. 
Um, and then after that, it's surgeries, right? Mostly it's just tons of operating. And for me, an average week often entails three or four trips across the country to procure organs for um, transplantation. And so um, that 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 wow. travel time kind of takes up a lot of my my week, but also the transplant itself, which runs usually about, I don't know, it can be as short as four hours, maybe even three if you say the kidney uh, to as long as eight to 10 hours, usually about six, but yeah, I'd say six is an average. So we're operating a ton and each surgery is truly two surgeries because you have to do the procurement and then you have to do the, the implant itself. Wow. And then so of course my family life. <laughs> right. So tell me a little bit, just a little bit more about that. If you get a call um, that there is a donor kidney available, you are the one that is flying out there to do the surgery to remove the kidney. Is that correct? Well, I will say that usually the agreed upon protocol for most of the countries, whoever gets the liver will get the kidneys for whatever centers are receiving. So that's correct for liver transplants. We usually like to fly out ourselves procure our own liver and then take it home for transplant. The kidneys, usually we defer to whoever took out the liver in that procurement. And so we'll receive the kidney. And so that becomes one surgery and we'll schedule it for whenever's uh, best for everyone, considering the, the patient, the recipient, what they have to do, whether it's dialysis or some phoresis to prepare them for transplant. Okay. So right away, I'm realizing that in my mind, when I thought about transplant surgeon, I'm picturing you constantly in the OR doing these long procedures, which you are, but I'm realizing that there's probably a lot of logistics and planning that has to go into this before you ever get in the OR. Yes. Uh, I would argue that it's actually one of the more difficult things to, um, to deal with in my job is the logistics of it all. The surgery, um, you do it so much. It becomes so routinized. It's almost, um, muscle memory. So it becomes, okay. that's where I find my flow and my enjoyment is the operation. It's the coordination and speaking to so many people to just get everything set up safely and appropriately. Um, that's where a lot of the, the difficulties of transplantation come into play. I, I shouldn't use the word just difficulties, but it is the complexity that, that adds to, to what a transplant surgeon does. <laughs> Okay. See how interesting I'm already learning. Um, and it, it, I'm also thinking too, though, that you're doing all that on top of six hours straight in the operating room. And when you're operating, you're there the whole time. Am I correct about that? Oh, yes. Yes. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and when I think about the other part of what you do, one of the things that really struck me about, um, about your background as well was that you received multiple awards from your department, even as a resident that you were, <laughs> I'm going to, uh, don't be <laughs> modest here because it's out there in the public. <laughs> okay. Oh, fair. That's definitely fair. <laughs> that you were um, at the Baylor College of Medicine General Surgery Residency, which, um, you know, I was a student at Baylor and that is known for being a very challenging residency. And yet you were intern out of the year, you were outstanding chief resident um, in general surgery. And then you even won a teaching resident award. And then I'm getting to my question here. <laughs> and then um, I, I noticed that you also have received a faculty excellence award for teaching from the Baylor College of Medicine, as well as an award from the medical students. So clearly teaching is, um, is a great interest and passion of yours. Um, can you tell me how you fit that in with everything else that you're doing? You know, I, 
One thing, and I know that when you invited me to speak, you asked about how I stay energized. And I really appreciate the way you framed it because oftentimes people are like, how do you avoid burnout? But I, I like more the idea of how do you stay energized? And part of staying energized is making everything kind of cohesive. And I mentioned flow earlier. When I think about operating in my work and my family life, and it, it becomes a bit overwhelming. And I'm sure the medical students who are listening to this can understand being overwhelmed by all the responsibilities of your life. And, and truth be told, oftentimes I am too, which is why I get worried about saying I have anything to share. But I will say with my experience, when I try and think of flow and what makes me happy and what makes me move, working as a cohesive unit with my team, all for the same objective, really it gets me very excited. And so um, nice. what I do is I'm kind of a succubus. Like I, 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 I take the energy that my teammates, my students, my <laughs> residents, that they offer me and we play with each other. I keep it playful. Um, and I try to make sure that everyone is on the same pathway. In fact, my mentor who inspired me to go into transplant, he'll often say you have to keep the train moving. And I really believe that. I think that if you have a, an organization, and I mean that like if you're in the operating table, you have an organization, right? You have your scrub nurse who's on your right hand. You have your first assist who's right in front of you. Then you have your students, your learners, your other residents who are kind of assisting um, that way. And then sometimes you have your boss there, right? If you're, if it's a difficult case or something is not going um, as planned. So you have a lot of people, but it is an organization and we all have the same goal, which is to make sure that this patient who's on our table gets off the table alive safely and with a new transplanted organ. And so for me, teaching is just part of that organization and part of getting everyone together. And, you know, it's not hard for me to teach because I was inspired by so many people and all I do is tell them what they told me. And so in, in my mind, teaching is a lot of just imparting all the gifts that were given to you and sharing it with others. One of the most impactful things I heard on my first day as a medical student was, you know, you could either keep it all for yourself or you could treat that many more patients by sharing the knowledge with your colleagues. So rather than being, you know, I'm going to use the term gunner, um, but rather than being the gunner who keeps that information and silos it away, I have adopted that attitude that that attending has shared with me, which is like, you know, you increase the patients you care for logarithmically if you share the knowledge so that people, other doctors can use it, other nurses, other um, healthcare professionals use that in their training and in their day-to-day -day life and in their business. So for me, teaching is just, it's the same as operating. It's part, it's all part and parcel with it. Um, then that's just so that we can all have flow, you know, and if everyone has flow in that day, everyone goes home happy and then they're slow at home and then they come back and everyone's happy and there's just flow everywhere. You know? so that's kind of how I think of the universe, honestly. I love that. I feel like if, if I was an artist, like I would love to see that visually also, I, you know, about beautiful flow going through. That's lovely. That is really lovely. I would say, um, though, that you are an artist because you do create a lot of art for the world to take in. So I would argue that, that you are one. <laughs> okay, that is deep. I like that a lot. <laughs> I need to think of it. Yes, I need to, I need to absorb that, that message. Thank you, Dr. Galvan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, you've inspired me a ton, a ton. Um, you know, we think about medicine as this very scientific endeavor. 
And I, and it is, but the art of medicine, I think overwhelms the science of medicine. And this year I've tried to tap into the artistic side that I actually grew up with. And it was a component of my life that I never really indulged um, in my adulthood. But now I'm realizing in keeping with their flow, that you can really, the beautiful thing about medicine is you can make it however you'd like it to be. So the fact that you write all these books and create all this information for people to take in, I mean, that's very inspiring because you not only have this flourishing clinical career, but you've also have this other side that I think feeds the many facets that humans have. And, um, and I think that's something that's very unique about luxurious about our careers is that we really can like, you know, if you want to be a bioengineer, you can be a bioengineer on top of your clinical medicine. You could be a basic science researcher, which I couldn't be like, that's not something that speaks to me, but I found other avenues in my life where um, you really can tap into the, the, those strengths that you have. I think what we often do is compare ourselves to others. And I think that's, I've grown to realize that that is a very um, big waste of time. It is helpful <laughs> only to learn what others are doing. And it's helpful to gain partnership and try and aspire to be better. But as long as it aligns with who you are, I think sometimes we waste our time trying to say, well, why did they win this award? Or why did they get this grant? Or, or you know, how did they get this promotion? And that's just such a waste of time right? Because it, 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 it is disrespectful to who, how unique and how special you are. So I teach that to my boys. I say, you know, you are made of a very special collection of stardust and there is no other com collection like you and there never will be. And so we have to honor that part of ourselves um, by trying to just, and I think that once we tap into that, um, our productivity is so much grander and more beautiful and more satisfying. And, and so I, I read this recently, happiness is work fulfilled, right? Is fulfilling work. And so you won't be fulfilled unless you tap into whatever it is that makes you excited and happy and, you know, looking forward to your day. So you, you can craft your day. I think that sometimes we feel trapped and, and I do too, right? But then you, you work towards it, whether it's working on yourself so you can communicate to your team or communicate to your boss or your leadership or, you know, your students, like, you know, this isn't working out. I need this to be like this and this and this. There is ownership in your life that you can do. And I think sometimes when we feel lost in medicine, a lot of it is because we've lost a little bit of that freedom or that feeling that we can create, um, create our day, you know. Yeah. You know, and this is one of the reasons when I, when I recently first met you, I was struck by the fact that I still have some stereotypes about what a transplant surgeon would be like. And, um, <laughs> and then I started talking to you and I remember one of the things that struck me was, um, and I would love for you to share your sticker project, um, because one of the things you started talking, um, when we started talking, that you created special stickers to give to your patients. And then that brought me into a conversation with you about how it must be so challenging to operate on pediatric patients who are incredibly, um, incredibly ill. And yet you said something to me that really um, stayed with me and surprised me because you told me about how courageous your pediatric patients are. Oh, I would love if you would share that with the audience as well about what is it like to operate and work with these really ill, small children? 
Um, it is profoundly humbling, I will say, um, and, and also inspiring for that topic that you just touched on. Their resilience is actually what kind of, um, I think is very beautiful. It is, it is sobering to work on children who are very sick um, and sometimes scary, to be frank with you. If things aren't going well, it is very scary because you know it's someone's child is on the table. But I will say that when they are, okay, I'll sit there. They spend some time in the ICU, you know, depending on how sick they started it off with. And then once they get to the floor, you know, we round. And when we round, uh, you know, a, a transplant team is very multidisciplinary. You'll have maybe 15, 20 people deep in rounds. And so there wow. are a lot of people involved in the care of a transplant patient. And then you'll have these kids come out, you know, like I remember last week, we had an 18 month old walking out of their room after a big old liver transplant. And they're just, you know, admiring the group. They're favoring one person over another. <laughs> they're being very playful. They have a feeding tube coming out of their nose and life is just life for them. It's still beautiful. It's still, you know, this is just what life is for them. And, and they just embrace it and they move beyond it and they don't get stuck. And they don't repeat the fact that they have this illness or that, you know, and, and certainly as we grow older, we kind of adopt these mechanisms to try and get past the stress that we're going through. But I find that in children, there is this innocence that, you know, this is life and I'm just going to enjoy what I can and, you know, you know, take it as it is. And I think that's very beautiful. And I think it actually makes healing them so much more rewarding. Um, because they really bounce back. They really just like take what you have to offer and then move along, you know? And I, and this is manifest also just like physiologically, if you are about one year old, I could put an ABO incompatible organ into you and it would be fine. You know, these organs. Wow. are similar. And so it just shows like when we say innocent, you know, we think like, you know, they haven't experienced much of the world, but there is like Innocence to me implies like this nascency, this like stem cell idea where they're just progenitor cells and they're just waiting to figure out who they're going to turn out to be. And so it's like this beautiful canvas. And so I do think that they just take whatever paint is thrust upon them and they make art out of it. And, and children, they're so honest. <laughs> they're so <laughs> deeply honest that you really, there's no veneer to look through, you know, you just see what you see. And I think that that's, what's really enjoyable about interacting with pediatric patients. Wow. See, I, I'm, I'm so glad you shared that because in my mind, I would be thinking like I would be weighed down by the, the heaviness of it, but I see what you're, I see what you're saying about the resilience and, and the moment to moment appreciating what's there. Because honestly, like if I woke up and I saw 20 people, like 20 doctor, like a 20 person transplant team. That would just be so scary. You don't like it. Yeah. No, I don't like it. I, I, I remember distinctly, actually, I was a medical student. I actually it was the summer before I started medical school and I had um, a drug reaction and I had this very characteristic rash, which you'll appreciate. Um, and then, you know, and I was at the hospital that I was going to train at and they asked me, can we have some medical students come in and look? And I said, no, no, absolutely not. And I think back on it because I remember that attending was just like, 
how could you? This is the art of medicine. You're actually going in and you're in a party. How could you not shit? And at the time, you know, you're just like an embarrassed young lady who doesn't want people staring at you, you know? Right. Um, right? But kids don't know that yet. They don't know shame or embarrassment yet. And and I think that's that's kind of lovely too. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that's great. Well, I also want to ask you something um, that I think is that I'm going to learn from too. And in terms of we, okay. So if you're a general surgeon and then if you're even more a transplant surgeon and you're traveling around the country um, and I know you're a parent, what advice do you have for other women and men who, you know, foresee themselves having a family and still want a career as a surgeon? Um, what advice would you have? I think that the most important part, uh, and I don't know that it was like, you know, I can't give you guidance because I think I lucked into it, but the most important thing one could do is build your community. And that doesn't mean a romantic partner. Not everyone has that, nor is that necessary, but like, maybe it means your mom, or maybe it means your sibling, or maybe it means this best friend that will do anything for you. Um, you know, we hear about like communes of friends that grow old together and they take care of each other's families. I truly mean that. And I mean that um, because you need support, right? Transplant and surgery is demanding. It's a demanding field and it will take a lot of your time, which we don't have much of to begin with. So every moment is very precious. So, what I mean to say is if you have a very strong community, then they will help you where you need help. They will help you with your laundry or it, you know, if your pet is sick or if your kid is sick or, you know, um, so for me, um, my community starts with my husband. I met him when I was a resident and, you know, um, we got married chief year and I had, I became pregnant during my, during my last year of fellowship. And that was very hard. And so I, I can't imagine how much more challenging it is having a child and having a family and residency. I often tell my residents, um, male and female, that is, it's just so challenging, but it's doable. And you can see it because other people are doing it more and more and more. And then furthermore, as albeit slowly programs, ACGME is starting to recognize how important it is to uh, set aside that time and space for families to grow together, especially early on. Um, wow. And so that that's helpful, right? It's I don't think it's enough, but it's helpful. Um, I don't think six weeks maternity leave is is humane. To be to be frank with you, I'm just gonna put that out there. I don't think that's yeah. humane, but but um, but it is doable, and it's even more doable if you have a community who is available for you and willing to be there for you. So I would say first and foremost, develop this, cultivate this village that has to take care of you. And then if it is doing a great job of that, then you can expand and, and create your own family. And then sometimes you happen to have the family first and then you cultivate the family afterwards. But so that's actually a very important thing for me. And so we, we here at Baylor are trying to um, work on helping 
young families, especially during the pandemic, you'll remember that healthcare workers had a big issue because they had to go to work, but their families were at home and everyone was at home. There was no schools, no, nothing. So um, that lack of support was very glaring. And I think that we need to have better support services in, in play so that people can feel supported in having families and, and their families can thrive. And then the community thrives and then everyone thrives, you know, as a, and we talked about an organism earlier. I, I think the same way as far as community go. So I have to tell you, I hated dating. Dating was awful for me. And I imagine dating is awful for a lot of people. But my priority was I wanted a family. And that didn't necessarily mean children. I wanted someone, a community. I wanted to create that. And so I sought it out. And I actually met my husband on eHarmony. So like, so I sought it out. So you have to seek out what it is that you want to, you know, create for yourself and manifest, but it does take a little bit of work and annoyances and, you know, but frankly, the dating process can be, you know, you meet a lot of lovely people who are looking for what you're looking for. So in, in that regard, commonality is, is nice to see, you know? So I would say there's, there's good in everything. And, but I would prioritize cultivating a community so that, you know, should you trip and fall and you will, and that's fine. um, Someone's there to help you up. That's that's the biggest thing I would I would advocate for is just making sure you have a network. Isn't that oh, that's so um, that's so insightful and important, and I firmly believe that too. And just the way you're speaking to um, like that gratitude for all of the people around you who are there to you know to help lift you back up. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you said that about if you trip and fall, and you will. Um, I'm so glad you you included that. You know, um, um, when I was growing up, I had a very fixed mindset. I just said, oh, this is just, this is the IQ I have. These are the test scores I'm have. I have, I'll, I'll never be able to get better from it. And that was really flawed. Now I adopted more of a growth mindset. And I, and I recognize that, um, that failure is part of success. You, you know, if you operate a ton, you're going to have complications. And so the idea isn't, I mean, the idea is to avoid as many complications as possible, but to deny that it will happen is, I think, a little bit um, a bias, right? Because then what happens is you you don't put that NG tube in or you don't do that exploration or you don't do what's necessary because you're denying to yourself that there is a complication. So I think this bias can beget more and more com- issues in life. Um, so just be able to get back up, you know, like if you just, you yeah. know, Denzel Washington says, if you fall down seven times, get back up eight. Um, So I, you know, I think that he's right. He's a very wise man, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I I have not heard him. I've I've heard versions of that quote, but I haven't heard that one. So maybe maybe I'm just like attributing it to him. But, you know, I love Denzel. So (laughs) yeah, so he deserves it. Yeah, (laughs) even if it's not his. But the um, point remains, and- you just got to get, get back up and, and roll with it. I, a complication used to set me back like three months. I would be depressed for three months and I wouldn't be able to operate very well. And, you know, and so I just, I had to shorten that because, you know, you want to give gravity to the complications and you want to take it seriously and you want to prevent it from happening again, but it cannot take away from everything else. You can't come home and, and yell at your family and you can't come go to work and yell at your colleagues and, and you know. It's just, it's not fruitful. So you have to learn to get back up. 
I'm glad you said that also, by the way, about yelling at your colleagues, because when I was a medical student, and I'm hoping that this has changed in the field of surgery, but I do remember if the surgeon was having a bad, sur- a, a bad surgery, he would be taking it out on the nurses. Like, and I was a medical student. I didn't know what was happening, but I could see it. Everybody could see it. It was so obvious. Um, it's like kicking the dog, right? Like um, you have a bad day and you, you kick somebody who cannot respond back. Um, so I'm glad you said that, that like, you're so conscious of that. Do you think that's gotten better in general surgery, by the way, as a whole? I do. I do. I think more because that people are getting in trouble for it more, which is, you know, like not really the way, the reason why you want to, but I also think another generation is coming up and I think they recognize that that's not a healthy way to respond. Is it gone? No. And do I think it'll always be gone forever? The thing about surgery is there, there is hierarchy. And whenever there is hierarchy, there will be personality that take advantage of their position on the hierarchy. And I think as long as there's retribution, when they go, um, they, they become unprofessional, then then it'll be muted. But I do think whenever there's hierarchy, there's always that chance that it'll be taken advantage of. Having said that, part of why I went into the field is because my mentor was incredibly respectful. And I actually wanted to be a CT surgeon at first. And what you're describing is what I saw most. And, And I didn't want to be angry. And I knew that whatever environment I put myself into, I would become, right? You're gonna become the birds you flock with. And so I switched and became a transplant surgeon in large part because my mentor had the values that I either had or wanted to have, aspired to have. And so we talked about building our community and building the people we spend a lot of time with. Um, Because I wanted to be a better version of myself, I would surround myself with people I thought also tried to do that or also um, had those values. And so for me, I think respecting the team is very important. Having said that, have I deviated? I have. And in fact, I got called into um, my chairman's office because there was one student who said I created a toxic environment. And I actually, I don't even remember the student, but I remember that day. I had a very bad day and I was, I don't, I was, I didn't yell at anyone, but I, I was very silent and I was very like grumpy and you could tell. And so, um, <laughs> So I don't think anyone's immune from it. And especially when you're in a high stress situation, it just like adds to it, right? But I will say like when I was a med student, I had a neurosurgeon throw an instrument and it was like about a foot away from my head. I wasn't even what? scrubbed. I wasn't even oh. scrubbed. Okay. And, and, the instrument and this like is, are you serious? And this I'm is an so adult? Serious. Yes, it was an adult. Yeah, neurosurgeon. So, you know, I, there are a lot less instruments being thrown. I will say that. So it is getting better. Is it the way that we would hope a professional setting should be all the time? No, it's not. I'll be honest with you, but it is definitely better. And, and I think that as long as we aspire to have values where we create a respectful environment, I just, I think it's much better. It's everyone's happier. Everyone works harder. And then when things are tough, that's not to say you don't, you're not tough. I'm tough. You know, I, I yeah. will say my fellow jokes about how scary I can be sometimes. I'm a tough <laughs> person, but that doesn't mean yeah. I, I don't care. I care about you a great deal. That's why I'm being tough. And I have to mediate yeah. it. Like I, I constantly try and upgrade my teaching methods. And, you know, 
one really important lesson I learned, and I don't know if that'll be helpful to medical students now, but maybe you can keep it in your pocket for when you start teaching more and more people, but you can be tough, but you cannot um, create a situation where you're only tough and the person you're being tough with thinks that you don't care about them. If you care about someone and you let them know that somehow, then they're willing to deal with the, the rigors of, of learning with you. And, and so that was very important to me that I, that everyone knows I care about you. I want you to be good because I know one day you're going to take care of other people, probably my family. And I want you to take care of them the way I expect them to be treated. And uh, just like I would take care of your family the way you would expect me to treat them. And so it's, I think that if we cultivate this respect um, and that doesn't always mean being nice, right? It just means having respect and kindness and warmth. Then I think that it becomes much better for, for everyone involved, much, much better. So I don't know why people go the, the evil mean route because I mean, <laughs> right? Even the research, I mean, you can say you be, you're being scientific, even the research shows that short, short-term gains, but long-term losses, right? It's yes. when you're kind and consistent, you can get long-term gains. And so you yes. just have to do the short-term annoyances, but just, you know, be nice. <laughs> well, I don't know how there's so much, no, there's so much wisdom in what you're saying. And the other thing that I'm picking up on, um, apart from the fact that what you're saying is like so true and so brilliant is also the fact that, um, what you said about your growth mindset, like even with your teaching methods, you are constantly trying to improve that. Um, I think that's super cool because uh, I think it's true. Like you think you graduate from residency, you start working and then you figured it all out, but look at you, even like you have won multiple teaching awards and yet you're constantly trying to improve that. That's a great lesson right there. Well, I have to tell you part of, you know, when I got that negative uh, medical student review, I was actually going through like a very depressive moment in my life. Like I just delivered a baby. Um, and so there's a lot of stress at home, my second baby actually. Um, and I, there was a lot of stress at home. There was a lot of stress at work. I had like two or three complications in a row and, and I am a tough teacher, but I leaned into the tough part and not the kind part. And so I noticed this, right. You notice when you're creating a, a very tense situation around yourself or I do. And so, and it's, it's a, something about me that I'm trying to get rid of because I, I can become very serious and intense is the word I've, I've heard before. Um, and so I've tried to mediate that and try to learn, like you said, new methods, because I don't want people to feel unsafe. I want them to feel supported. I want them to feel supported. And, and sometimes that means you have to put away or deal with whatever you're dealing with so that you can help that interaction improve. Right. So, um, you know, for me dealing with you, sometimes when you have a lot on your plate, you just gotta figure out a way to make it more manageable. Sometimes that means getting rid of stuff on your plate, but, um, (laughs) but I will say stress begets change. And, and for me, when I'm stressed, I, 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 I feel like I have to learn some other technique or some other way to deal with what's happening. You just have to kind of roll with the punches, I guess. Well, I love, I love this because you're just really talking about how in every area of your life, it's constant growth, um, yes. learning, right. Learning the lesson, growing from it, um, trying yes. new things, trying new ways. Yes. That's an important lesson. Yeah. Well, um, if you had any advice, um, 
or what advice would you have for a medical student who is considering surgery as a career and um, wants to, you know, wants to do well in that? Just your general advice for succeeding and getting into surgery. Yes. Reps, repetition, right? So like working hard will get you very far. Um, I, I think, I mean, that's pretty simplistic and maybe that's offensive to some people how simplistic it is, but <laughs> I'll tell you, honestly, the more you're in the OR, the more you're w- working on like trying to help your teammates, you know, if you make your chief resident look good, your chief resident, I promise you is going to make you look good. You know, like all of this um, feeds itself. So if you are truly invested as a team member um, and work really hard as a medical student, you're going to graduate and become an intern. And so in my mind, when I was in this, these roles, I would pretend I was two years in advance. So if I was a new medical student, I would look at what the um, uh, sub I was doing and try to mimic them. Then when I was an intern, I tried to look at the three and try and mimic them. So like you would try and like uh, kind of uh, expedite your learning a little bit by trying to model yourself after those. And and I, I don't know if you guys can tell, I modeled myself. So I would look for examples and try and model the aspects that I enjoyed or liked or thought were worthwhile. And um, that has served me a lot. But one thing that is consistent is if you work hard, you will get better. If you operate more, you will get better. If you, you know, all of these things are really, really good. One thing I will add, and this is why, why I'm talking to you from Cornhill and the hill, you know, um, and the countryside here is when you are tired, rest. That's all I have to say about that. When you are tired, rest, because you will not do well if you keep pushing it to a, to a you know, take a vacation, um, take a little trip, tell your, your program director, I need a day, I need two days. Like you have to rest. And if you're at the point of breaking, you've waited too long. It, just rest, add the rest in. And, you know, I'm speaking from a very, gilded position in that it's taken me, you know, what I'm like 16 years since I started at Baylor, 15 years. Uh, it's taken me this long to learn that, you know, I need to use my vacation. I need to use it all my vacation. And, and it's, and it, you know, it's funny because I like kind of exploded at work and I realized that, you know, this is not their fault. I decided not to take my vacation. I decided not to rest and now I'm all cranky. So whose fault is that? Right. So so now my adjustment for that is that now I will take my full vacation. And so part of that is just like, and you know, I'm not writing papers. I'm not reading anything. You know, I, I'm, I'm doing a fun conversation with a friend. I, I hold dear to my heart. That's, that's about as much work as I'm going to do. And I'm okay with that. And I promise you, and I found this to be true. If you, um, when you come back to work, you're going to be more productive. And I will say one thing, one other thing I'm going to add. I only try to accomplish two things a day, maybe three max. Oh, nice. That kind of hyper focus allows you to actually complete a task. And I say this to the medical students because I know they're type A, they're trying to do 17,000 things at once. And, um, and then it gets overwhelming. If you, you can do 17,000 things at once, just not on one day. If you only do one to three things in one day, you'll have felt, felt accomplished. You'll actually finish the task. And then the next day you'll have, you can move on to the next. So those, those are the work hard and, you know, rest when you're tired and then um, only do one to three things a day. 
And I think that's, that's as much as you need, honestly. Oh, that's so good. Don't you? I, I feel like there's so many people I need to share that message with because, you know, and, and, and some people might respond to like, if somebody heard that from, from somebody on the internet, like do one to three things a day and that's it. They might roll their eyes, but this is yep. coming from a transplant surgeon. Who's also a teacher. Who's also, we didn't even get into your research, but um, you know, you've got multiple things on your plate, but this is you from this position saying one to three things a day. You're giving them permission. Yes. Like I'll have a load of laundry sitting, you know, in my room and I have to fold it. And if it's, if I'm tired, I'm not going to do it. And um, if it's my fourth or fifth thing to do today, I'm not going to do it. And I've allowed myself, I've forgiven myself. I've given myself that room, that latitude to say, this is not on today's list. And, and then that's that, you know, so maybe my home isn't as spotless as other people's are, <laughs> but I will say the one to three thing was like a, it was revelatory for me because mm-hmm. I used to have lists that span 20, 20 items long. And it was, it was silly, you know? So just do one to three major things, just focus on those things and you'll get them done. You'll be happy and proud of yourself. And then you'll be able to move on tomorrow. And I wonder if part of, um, part of that too comes from your surgery background, like really understanding what makes, um, that you can only focus on your surgery, right? When you're doing surgery, there's nothing else that you can focus on. That's exactly right. Yeah. I think, I think to do the thing well is more important than to do, um, 10 things, um, partially well, you know, so just focus on the task and, and everything will come together. I do believe that. Well, Dr. Galvan, this has been so interesting. And, um, and I think for our students also, not necessarily what you would think of. At, um, at, no, I'm probably bringing my own stereotypes into this. So I'm so glad that you are breaking stereotypes of what oh, a transplant surgeon is. <laughs> and also what a transplant surgeon's life can be like, you know. So um, thank you so much for also being very um authentic and transparent about some of the challenges and how you've overcome that. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak to to our student audience. No, I'm very grateful for this chance to to share um, some of the things I picked up along the way, Um, but but also to just spend some time with you because I really, I just enjoy you and I appreciate all that you have to offer for the universe. So I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. So thank you very much.